If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, uh, if you can turn them to Acts chapter 19. We are working our way through the book of Acts. Um, often I start sermons with a story, but this morning I want to start with a quote and a question. A quote and a question. A quote that we all need to consider and a question that we either have or will need to ask ourselves in our lifetime. The quote is this. It's by A.W. Tozer. It says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. No quote? Oh. Well, you'll have to just listen. It's not going to be on the screen. A.W. Tozer, I'll read it a couple times. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't want you to glide over that. I want you to actually think about what, what do I think of when I think about God? What do I think of when I think about God? There could be a whole variety of people here this morning. There is a whole variety of people here this morning. But you may answer that question very different. Maybe you uh, are a professing atheist. Maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you say, what do I think of when I think of God? I think of nothing. Uh, maybe you're agnostic or you say uh, something along the lines of, there may be a God, there may not be a God, but we just can't know. It's unknowable. Maybe you're further on the spectrum, you say, well, it seems obvious there is a God, but we can't know him personally. But maybe you're here, and I hope this is true for you, that you do believe in God. You fully trust in God and you fully submit to God. This morning, we're going to consider our own hearts, and we're going to consider through the book of Acts uh, how some people would respond to that question. What we think of when we think of God, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we're going to see some contrasting stories, some good examples and some bad examples. Now, these kinds of questions and these things that we're going to run into this morning are not new to the book of Acts. They're not new to even the whole Bible. Our catechism question that the kids have gone over this past week, the catechism question was, what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? And the kids are singing along here, thinking of the answers. First, that we know God as the only true God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry. And third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence. So these are not new ideas. This is what we're going to be bumping into this morning. And so our big idea, our big idea this morning, is an encounter with God changes everything. An encounter with God changes everything. Right? If, you, if you're a note taker, take notes here. An encounter with God changes everything. And we're going to see different examples of how those encounters with God in our passage this morning are different. We're going to see worship, fear, questions, confusion, even anger to an encounter with God. And so whether positive or negative, an encounter with God does change everything. The setting of our passage this morning is the city of Ephesus which uh, Paul spent a lot of time in as we went through last week. 
on his third missionary journey. Ephesus was a mecca of the ancient world. Uh, there was a lot happening there. Entertainment, sports, religion. Sort of think of a, an L.A. or a New York City or a Toronto today. It's a happening place. And just like a few chapters ago, when Paul made his way to Athens, he encountered something that was identifying about the city. And in Athens, it was idolatry. And it's no different in Ephesus. Ephesus was built around the goddess Artemis. She was a central figure. Uh, there was this monstrous temple built for her. It took 120 years just to build the temple. And it, it dwarfed the Parthenon. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a monster. The whole city, the life in Ephesus revolved around worship, but misguided worship. It was worship of Artemis, of other idols, of mysticism. And so what happens? Well, Paul shows up. That's what typically happens to these cities in the ancient world here. Paul shows up. And what does Paul do? Well, he points people to the one true God. He points people to the one true God. And so our first point as we consider an encounter with God, how that changes everything, is how, does the, how do those encounters happen? We're going to see that our first point, if you're taking notes, the power of God preached. The power of God preached. And so in a large part, these encounters with God happened because Paul showed up and he preached the word. He shared the gospel. We ended last, uh, last week. We concluded our sermon with uh, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Uh, it says, He, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So daily, he preached the gospel. Daily, he shared the word of the Lord. In the heat of the day, he just kept trucking on. That was Paul's signature move. The power of God was preached. And certainly, he was a special guy. He was a unique guy. But this isn't a unique call to him. Right? We think of uh, his obedience. He's really being obedient to the Great Commission. Where Jesus says, make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. This is what Paul's doing. This is what his whole life revolves around. Sharing the gospel. Our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul does. He makes the gospel known. And we see one of Luke's little kind of summary verses in chapter 19. We'll get here eventually. But verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The spread of the gospel is relentless. It's always moving forward. And in large part, it's from the preaching of God's word. Paul later writes to the Romans, famous verse, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So that's what we're considering, the power of God preached, the power of God shared. Now you may be sitting there thinking, well, I don't have a pulpit spot. Is this relevant to me? This is relevant to you. When I say preach, you can interchange that with sharing the gospel in this context. Right? He's reasoning daily. We've considered Paul's ministry. Yeah, 
He's at the Hall of Tyrannus giving lectures, but he's also in the marketplace. He's also interacting with different people. Look at the different way, even as we considered, uh, there was no synagogue, nowhere for him to really preach when uh, he was with Lydia, but they went down to the river. That's where people congregated, and that's where the gospel was shared with her. So the power of God preached, or the power of God shared in the proclamation of the gospel. Now we see that so in verse 20, right? So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That tells us that in between those uh, two verses, verse 10 and verse 20, something else contributed to an encounter with God. Something else contributed to this spread. So let's read those verses. Verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. But this became known, uh, and this became known to the rest, uh, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see the power of God preached, but we also see the power of God demonstrated. That's our second point. Power of God preached, the power of God demonstrated. Now I know what you're thinking right away. There's some kind of crazy things that happen in those couple verses. You might be left scratching your head, right? Verse 12, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. What's that all about? Are we supposed to start a handkerchief ministry at HGC? We see, though, we can't skip over verse 11. Verse 11 is key here. And who? God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God. So who's doing this? God. So when you hear of the televangelist who is selling handkerchiefs that they touched and prayed over, and they, there's some power in that because they touched it, run away. Right? This is God who is doing extraordinary miracles. So who's doing the work? God. It's the power of God demonstrated, not the power of Paul demonstrated. And also Luke adds this adjective to set the idea of miracles apart. He says extraordinary. Now all miracles are extraordinary. But he's saying extraordinary, extraordinary events. He seems to set these apart in a way. And so we shouldn't discredit miracles. I'm not saying we throw out, okay, we need to steer clear. But we do need to look at, at these passages and ask the question, you know, what is descriptive and what is prescriptive? But we shouldn't discredit miracles. God can 
has and will do whatever he wants and whatever he needs to do for his purposes. We see there's times of miracles really concentrated. Even in the Bible, there's times where there's a lot of miraculous things happening, extraordinary miracles. There's also times when there aren't. And so when we consider that, we can look at the ordinary means and the extraordinary means of the gospel spreading. The ordinary means being years of preaching in the heat of the day, every single day, by Paul. That's an ordinary means. There's certainly something extraordinary happening when the gospel is shared. But that's an ordinary means. And then we also see extraordinary means. So the, the power of God is demonstrated in multiple ways. And so I'd encourage you to don't, don't fall into a trap of sitting around and waiting for a miracle. Trust God. He knows what he's doing. We need to have a balanced view. We need to know and rest in the fact that God is working even if we don't see visible miracles. If you're a Christian here this morning, consider your own heart. Consider the miracle that you are in salvation. The fact that you could be made right with God. That is a miracle. So we see the power of God demonstrated. We also see the power of God, again, in ordinary events, extraordinary events, but we see it contrasted in a, a serious way with the, the weakness of man. The power of God and the weakness of man. These seven sons of Siva, sounds like an 80s hair metal band, the seven sons of Siva, they try to replicate the power of God and it proves to be futile. They try even using the name of Jesus. We see the evil spirit acknowledges Jesus, says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And we see things go bad for them. Things go bad. It reminded me of, uh, there's an old viral video that went around of an old man. He didn't look like a pushover, but he was just a little guy. He was sitting there like this. And uh, these two guys come up to him in what looks like an alleyway and then confront him. They get right in his face. Big guys. He's just sitting there like this. Now what they didn't know, what they, uh, the piece of information that would have helped them is that he was a former boxer. And so they're right in his face. And then all of a sudden, the flash of a couple punches and bobbing and weaving. All of a sudden, there's a couple people unconscious and the old guy's still standing there like this. It happens in a flash. Now, I've seen other videos that have gone around that people have claimed to be fake. But what happened there was these guys in the alley, they were out of their depth. And that's what happens to the seven sons of Siva. They're out of their depth. They were left naked and wounded. And so we see in Ephesus, the power of God is preached. The power of God is demonstrated. Demonstrated through ordinary means and extraordinary means. And now we consider the responses to the power of God. The responses. And we read about it. The word spread through all of Ephesus. And this encounter with God leads to a change in affections. This encounter with God, as our big idea said, changes everything. Pastor Tony Marita, when he uh, looked at this passage, he compared that change of affections that happens at conversion that change of affections to being similar to a teenage boy who falls in love for the first time. Right? Maybe he starts wearing deodorant 
Maybe he uh, washes his car. Maybe he gets a job. Maybe he gets multiple jobs to fund dating. Why? Because there was a change in affections. And so on a much larger scale, so it is with an encounter with Christ. An encounter with God drives confession, drives humility, drives worship, and, and drives a turn from their old lives. We see they had these magic books. They saw the power of God and the weakness of man, and they said, oh man, we've really invested in the weakness of man here. They could have sold their magic books. They could have donated them to the Ephesian value village, but they didn't. They burned them. Right? They gave up something of value to them. If we do the math, as scholars seem to agree that that uh, piece of silver would be a day's wage, so 50,000 days wages, some simple math with uh, a day's wage here would put us in a modest category of $5 million worth of books being burned. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of value. But when they were confronted with the power of God and the lack of man's power, they are driven to change, a change in affections. And so Christian brother and sister, how have your affections changed? since coming to Christ? Have your affections changed? Consider your heart. Consider your life. What, what is the magic book that you're afraid to throw into the fire? Throughout the Bible, we see what happens when people get a new heart. Any list of sto uh, stories. The woman at the well. Zacchaeus. We looked even in Acts. Lydia, God opened her heart. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Even look at Paul. Talk about a change of affections. Right? It's not like he said, okay, I'm going to become uh, this preacher. I'm going to go town to town. I'm going to really live it hard, but I'm going to keep that little part of my life where I persecuted people, where I persecuted Christians. No, there's a, a change of affection, a radical change. And so Pray for God's help in this. It's God who drives that change. This isn't works righteousness. God drives this change in affection. So pray that the Spirit would allow you and equip you to flee from sin. This isn't perfection, no. But this is a changed heart, a change in affection. Robert Murray McShane, he said this as he considered what it means for the Holy Spirit to dwell in him. And this is true for you if you're a Christian. I pray that this sentiment would be true for us. He said, I ought to never forget that my body is dwelt by the third person of the Godhead. The very thought of this should make me tremble to sin. The very thought of this should make me tremble to sin. So we see an encounter with the power of God through the power of God preached, the power of God demonstrated. And we see a proper response. Again, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. An encounter with God demands a response. And so let's read on. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
Now, even in these two verses, a lot of things are happening. We get a little bit of a geography catch-up, or at least uh, setting the stage of what's to come. We see Paul's intentions, his spirit-led intentions. And this is really a roadmap for the rest of Acts. We're going to see this unfold, what he lays out here. It's during this time that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And as I said, we're going to follow along with Paul through Asia, through Macedonia, to Jerusalem, and eventually to Rome. But what we see comes next is, again, an encounter with God. We've seen a proper response. Now we see our next point, an improper response to the power of God. An improper response to the power of God. Now there's a lot that's going to happen in this next story here. I'm going to read it right through, but I want you to keep an eye out for that. An improper response to the power of God. Verse 23. About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also all of, almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be de even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper for the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and, and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is a unique passage throughout the book of Acts. 
It's riddled with sermons. There's 19 main sermons through the book of Acts. A quarter of the verses that make up this book are sermons themselves. And this whole scene doesn't end with a sermon from Paul or anyone. Right? It ends with a, the town clerk kind of bringing things back down. But out of this whole story of chaos and confusion, let's compare this response to the previous response we looked at. The response to God's power. We saw a disturbance before. Well, this one says, about that time, verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance, or a big disturbance, concerning the way, the way of Christianity. We saw a disturbance before, right? A bunch of guys got beat up by an evil spirit, a person with an evil spirit in them. That was a disturbance, but look, that led to worship. That led to a proper response. This response, this response was driven by idolatry. Idolatry. And we talked about idols a couple weeks ago. We talked about literal idols, right? And that's what we're seeing a little bit of here, literal idols, the, the goddess of Artemis. But we also see other idols. We see really the big one here is greed. Greed. Demetrius is saying, we're going to lose some money. And so he's driven by a love for money and a, or a fear of losing his money. So he rallies people up. He gets the rabble going. Now, this is not hard to apply. The Bible talks a lot about money. But if you're anything like me, you know that money can be an idol. You know that money can be a problem. That doesn't mean we have a shrine to money in our homes or we uh, congregate at TD to worship there. But when we consider what it means to have an idol, we consider what it means to have something capture your heart. Right? What do you think? If I had to ask you this question, what do you think would make you truly happy? That's, that's an idol to you. What would absolutely gut you if you lost it? That's an idol. Maybe it's, if we're talking about greed and money, maybe it's what you get from money. Uh, toys, right? Possessions, security, Financial security, status. Right? Toys, sorry, toys are fun. It's not in themselves bad things. Financial security, uh, there's some, some prudence and wisdom there. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, and that's danger town, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that thing becomes an idol. And so Demetrius is a mirror for many of us this morning. You see, his vision is clouded by greed. His vision is clouded by greed, and that, that prevents him from even opening his eyes to this encounter with God. Right? An encounter with God changes everything. For him, really boiled his blood. Now, not even everything he's saying is false. Right? Verse 26. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Right? Demetrius heard Paul's message. Paul is condemning idolatry. That's, uh, that's part of the, the message that Paul proclaims often. Right? We need to exchange the treasure of our heart for a real treasure of our heart, a real hope, and that is Christ. So Demetrius hears the message, but his affections are unchanged. 
Affections are unchanged. This is the opposite example of what we saw in verse 19. In verse 19, they gave up their former passions, even at a cost, a financial cost. They burned their books. Demetrius does the opposite. So we see greed. Then we also see pride. Greed and pride. The city's identity is tied to Artemis. And he says, man, if Christianity takes off, that's going to jeopardize our identity. That's going to jeopardize our finances, but also what we're so proud of, what we've built, this city. Think of uh, Orlando, Florida, right, and surrounding area, and Disney World. Their identity is tied up in Disney. If you pull Disney out, it'd just be another city, another city with nice weather and alligators. But if you pull Disney out, they lose something. They lose pride. They lose their reputation. They lose money. And so pride is the opposite of humility. And really the, the pinnacle of humility is confession. And that's what we saw in verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. There was a humble response to an encounter with God. As opposed to the opposite, which we see a prideful response to an encounter with God. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I'm with you. Pride is a problem. Pride is not a good thing. Pride certainly can be an idol, but, but it's not really a problem for me. Well, if you're a Christian, I would ask you a question. Uh, why, why is it so hard to go and share the gospel with your neighbor? Well, maybe that's pride. Maybe you say money. Yeah, that's a problem. Of course money's a problem. Right, look at what Jesus had to say about how hard it would be to, to be rich and enter the kingdom of God. But not for me. I don't have enough for it to be a problem. Right? Oh, look at her. Oh, she's got loads of money. She must have a money problem. Look at that guy. He's got all the toys. Oh, he must be enslaved to money. But maybe you're a lot like me and you look at the rich young man that Jesus talks to and says, sell all you have, give all you have to the poor. And he walks away with his head hung in shame because he had so many possessions, he couldn't do it. Right? The money is an idol for you. And so for whatever these idols are, these are questions worth asking. These are questions worth asking because too much of Demetrius's life looks a lot like mine, especially compared to my willingness to go and confess and so we see that things boil over, right? Chaos ensues. That's a surefire way to diagnose an idol problem. Surefire way. If you want to tell someone about Jesus, at least around here, most people will nod and listen, right? But you try to pull their idols away, you threaten their idols, man, buckle up. Now that's something we can reflect on ourselves too. Where do our emotions go? I shared this a couple weeks ago. Matt Papa says, our emotions are like the smoke from the fire of the altar of the true God we worship. Our emotions are like the smoke from the fire of the altar of the true God we worship. And so that's exactly what we see in Ephesus. 
Their idols are threatened and the city erupts into chaos and confusion. Now you heard the story as we went through. But we see them relentlessly chanting. They grab Paul's companions. Most don't even know why they're there. Most don't even know what the confusion is. Maybe that's you. Maybe that you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm rejecting God, but I honestly don't even know why. Maybe that's you. We see they get to the open air theater. It's magnificent in Ephesus. It's still preserved. Should, I don't know if the slides, yeah, slides are working. Look at that thing. It's massive. 500 feet across, built into the side of a mountain. Could seat 25,000 people. Right? This is no small thing, right? And that's the theater that they went to, where the whole city was congregating, losing their minds. Most of them didn't even know why. Right? They're chanting. And this Alexander guy gets put forward. Uh, we don't know the exact motivation. It seems like likely put by the Jews to say, oh, man, distance yourself from these Christians. Right? Things are about to go south here. Right? The second they find out that he's a Jew, they chant him down for two hours. I don't know, that's crazy to me. That's like the longest game of uh, did not, did too, did not, like just back and forth. And it's just everyone's yelling at each other. People don't know why they're yelling at each other. And they're chanting him down. I could just imagine this Alexander guy like, just give me a chance here. I'm trying to, and boom, there's no magnification. He can't overpower 25,000 people screaming at him. So again, chaos, chaos and confusion. Paul wanted to go in, but he was stopped by his friends, some Christians, and even some uh, Political officials, they say, man, you're going to be torn apart if you go in there. Maybe literally. And so then finally, again, we see this town clerk go in. He settles things down. And he essentially d does that by saying, there's no cause for this. There's no cause. You're, you're losing it. The Romans are going to come down on us here if we are starting a riot. There's no cause. But we see that there, there is a cause. Right? The cause is an encounter with God that changes everything. How can it not change everything? This happens over and over through the book of Acts. This happens over and over in our world today. And this happens over and over in our own hearts. And so that leads us to ask the question, what, what is our response to God? When we have that encounter with God, what is our response does it, does it drive us to humility and confession? Does it drive us to worship? Or does an encounter with God expose our idols? Right, again, the quote at the beginning, the Tozer quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There he is. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But we can't disconnect that from, uh, and simply say, what do we think about God? We need to let, frame that thought, what God thinks about us. What does God think about us? That's a message that demands a response. Consider a myriad of verses, but even John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how God feels about the world. Paul preached this message of Christ and it caused a riot. Christ himself 
Jesus preached and lived this message, and it caused a riot. One that he willingly walked into, one that his friends didn't keep him away from, one that he was abandoned in, one where he was eventually killed by lawless men. He was at the center of this hate-fueled, idolatry-driven, confusing riot. And he went willingly. And he went because while we were still sinners, he was willing to die for us. He bore the weight of our rebellion, bore the weight of the rebellion he walked into in that riot. He made a way for us to be made right with God. He said, accept this gift by repenting and believing. Just accept the gift. And he died and he rose, showing that the debt was paid. So that, that is an encounter with God that changes everything. There's no way we can't have a response. There's, there's, I said there's a spectrum. Where are you right now? Uh, where will you be? But there's really two ways to live here. Are, are we going to respond in humility? Or are we going to respond in pride? An encounter with God, it changes everything. And so if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this this morning, how will you respond to that message? How will you respond to Christ? Maybe you're here or you're listening in. Maybe you're part of the rabble and you reject God, but you honestly don't even know why you're rejecting God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're not disconnected from this. How will you respond to an encounter with God? How will you continue to respond to God, the creator and sustainer of the universe? Will you lay down whatever it takes? Are you going to white knuckle your idols to the grave? And so let what God thinks about you drive what you think about him. Let's pray. God, we come to you genuinely humbled at your power and your greatness. God, we pray that you would teach us that by your help we could respond to an encounter with you as we saw some respond in humility, in confession, opening up our hands to what we hold on to. God, help us when our default position is too easy uh, to slip into holding on even tighter to those idols, that we get our backs up. God, expose in our lives where our blood boils and our emotions drive us and teach us over and over with our encounter with you of your glorious gospel that saves and transforms that we can't we can't walk passively into this God we know that we must uh, this message demands a response so God help us we can only respond by you opening up our hearts God help us pray this in Jesus name Amen